Good morning. How are we all going? Good? Cool. We got 30 odd people out around the, around the city today, this morning, in the different stalls. So think of them working hard, doing some great things. The uh, Living Stones, I'd really encourage you guys, if you haven't been along to that, or even if you, it doesn't matter how long you've been at Liberty, if you're just a little bit uncertain, really what we just want to do in that is we just really very much have a conversation. Have a conversation about what we're about. Some of the things that God's implanted in our heart, the, the call that God's placed upon us as a church, the journey we're on, how that looks, what we want to go, achieve, how we do it. So it's just an opportunity just really just to engage and have a chat with the, with the pastors and just to talk about the different things that, that are, are important to us as a family. There's no obligation or anything like that. It's not kind of like, you know, if I go to this, I'm, what, what's going to happen next? It's just really we're wanting to share because it's so important. You know, one of the things I'm really connect, committed to is the intentionality of what we do. You know, it's not just about we, we just come here on a Sunday morning because that's what Christians do. They've got to come to church on Sunday. You know, it's in the rule book. It, it's not about that at all. It's about actually learning what it is to be family together. You know, we've been called, you know, one of our catchphrases that I preached on a, um, last year or the year before was, you know, we're, we're found in Christ and we're formed in family. And it's that whole concept of, you know, for, I think we, we've often got the whole thing about being found in Christ. We all have faith in Christ, but we've really not understood about what it means to be a family, what it means to live it out. And, and more and more, God has really spoken to us as a leadership over the last couple of years of understanding that, that thing that we are called as priests, um, kingly priests, to bring heaven to earth, but not as individuals, but as a community. One of the most powerful things is... Uh, really a representation of heaven is actually community. You know, in a sense, God is a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are an eternal, loving community with themselves. And, and really, effectively, salvation is inviting us into that community to be part of the family of God, but not just to be the family, but to actually enter into profound, deep relationship. You know? Christianity is not about you getting saved and going to heaven. And that's a product of it, and it's wonderful, and it's good news, but it's far more than that. It's actually about being in eternal, intimate relationship with the living God. And I tell you what, it doesn't get any better. That's the ultimate goal. And so we just, and there's different things that the Lord's taught us and revealed us on our journey the, the last 10 years as we've gone through and built what we're building here. And, and you know, it's not just a, the leadership, it's us as a community doing it together. You know, it's one of the things, it's about us together. You know, we're not wanting to be um, putting on a show or anything like that. We want to we wanna learn what it really means to be family. That's what, what, what the whole thing's about. And, um, you know, I don't think we know how to do it. You know, I don't, I mean, I'm not bagging anyone. This is just purely observational. I don't think the church has known how to do community well. And we, you know, and, um, you know, something goes wrong. We chuck the toys out of God's sandpit and go off into our own little thing. And I think it's time we learned how to play nice and how to build family and how to walk things out together. Because I believe when we learn how to do that, that's when we're going to see true, full-on revival when we're a safe people for God to send the, 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 the multitudes into, yeah? So part of that, anyhow, is just on our, uh, on our um, living stones. So come along. It's the two nights. It's only 
an hour or so each night and just sharing together and talking. You also get to, to you know, as I say, interact a little bit more, which you perhaps haven't been able to do with, with us, and just to hear our, our hearts and our story, which is really, you know, part of this, the whole thing. So, sound okay? Cool. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I just thank you for this time this morning. Father, we are just always just so stunned at your goodness. Father, I feel like so often I just bring such a, a, a crumbs to the table and yet I behold a feast. And it's just I come in rags and you know, I end up ga- being um, clothed in, in fine jewellery because of who you are and what you've done. And Father, it's just so breathtaking. And Father, I just pray that as I just share this morning that you would just anoint these words. Father, bring clarity, I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'd like to get them out, we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 26 in a moment. Um, from now, probably up till Christmas, probably going to do a bit of a series to see how it impacts on Jesus. It's always a good theme, I figure, for Christians to do. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, we should always be doing that. But, you know, I think so often it's easy for us to compartmentalise how we look at Jesus, how we look about who, God, who Jesus is. You know, come Easter, we always have him on a cross and we have the resurrection and, and all that. How Christmas comes along, we have him in a cattle shed. Even, even though it's the cleanest cattle shed I've ever seen. But hey, that's what the pictures tell us, so that's okay. But you know, it, it's easy, I think, to reduce the impact of who Jesus is. And so what I want to do is I want to do a series the next week called Seeing Jesus. But I don't want to concentrate or focus on, on his birth or on those stories. What I want to really do is look at the different encounters that Jesus had with the different people in the Gospels. And through that, I believe we can see some things, different things of who Jesus is. And, and that it will reveal to us his nature and his character. And it also reveals how we need to respond to him and how to see him more clearly. You see, I'm convinced that if we see Jesus more clearly, then we will love him more completely. In fact, I think the people that don't love Jesus, they just simply don't know him. They just don't see him clearly. But if you see him, your response will be to love him. And even if we're saved, we want to continually see more of Jesus. We want to see him clearer so we can love him more deeply and surrender to him more completely. And um, so that's part of what my goal is for over the next few weeks as I share the, this, this um, series with you. But before we look at this morning's um, Topic, I guess, or the scripture. What I want to do is just want to set it up a little bit, you know. And um, I think we all know that at some level, but it's a good reminder for us in the Western church that Christianity is a radical lifestyle. It's a radical lifestyle. You know, people have different different ideas of what it is to be a Christian. I mean, when I was growing up, people thought Christians were a lot of nice, inoffensive, ineffective people. Unfortunately, things have changed a little bit, and today most people see the church as being a whole lot of people who are really angry and really against pretty much anything that, that someone wants to do. Christianity may be that thing that we just do on a Sunday. I think sometimes some of us grew up with that idea of that Christianity was like. 
And even those who do go to church often find it as a community and where there's people and there's nothing wrong with that. But Christianity at its core is a radical lifestyle of following Jesus. It's a radical life where Jesus really does call us to surrender everything to follow him. I mean, just read the Gospels. Again and again, we see Jesus telling the disciples to leave everything and follow him. They left home and family and jobs and gave up everything to follow him. You know, sometimes we read that and we kind of have this idealistic thing that they were just all sitting around all day, sitting under trees, doing nothing. You know, they were just kind of all hanging out. Oh, here's Jesus here, let's follow him. These were men and women who were working. They were working for a living. They were as much in their careers as what you and I are today. And suddenly Jesus comes and interrupts everything and he calls them to follow him. Radical stuff, radical stuff. Jesus would tell parables, stories about a rich merchant who sells everything to buy a pearl of great price or someone who would sell everything to buy a field because of the treasure that was in it. See, it's this radical pursuit of Jesus at his core of Christianity. Christianity is not just a social club. It is a radical pursuit and a radical following of Jesus. And this morning we see some of this manifested in the story that we're going to read in Matthew 26. We're going to be talking about Mary of Bethany. Now, now if you've been around the church any, any, any amount of time, you, you would know the story. You would have heard the story. Mary of Bethany comes and anoints Jesus with this oil from an alabaster jar, this flask, if you like. Now, Mary knew Jesus. She's a sister of Lazarus and Martha. She's the one who, who, while Martha was working so hard, sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he was saying. She was connected to him. She knew him. And she was listening to everything he was saying. She saw up close and personal Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. She saw Jesus for who he was. And when she encountered him, Not just in a second, but when she really encountered Jesus and recognized who he was and got to see all that he did, she focuses on him and she recognizes how worthy he is. And that encounter that Mary had with Jesus provoked her. It provoked something inside of her. It provoked that thing where she said, I have to give an extravagant offering in response to who Jesus is. Listen to Matthew 25. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him. Now, you know, just we know from the other Gospels that this is Mary. And just to help you also, I don't want to, so you don't get confused in this, there are actually two times in the Gospels when women come and anoint Jesus. The first one, which is earlier on, is when he's up in northern Israel and he's preaching and ministering, and it says a prostitute came and she poured water over, oil over his feet and wiped his feet with her, with her hair. And then much later in Jesus' ministry, this happens in southern Israel. Okay, so there's two different stories. Sometimes people get confused and think that Mary's being called a prostitute or it's Mary Magdalene. It's not. It's a different Mary. As I said, the the, uh, sister of 
Martha and uh, Lazarus. So a woman came to him having an alabaster jar of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold and given to the poor? But when Jesus was aware of this, he said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Mary sees Jesus. She encounters Jesus. And when she saw the glory of God manifested in her life, in his life, sorry, she, she saw the worthiness of Jesus and it provoked a response. And that response was, I want to give Jesus something that is extravagant in nature, that costs me something. And so what she did is she went and got this alabaster jar, this flask filled with expensive perfume, and poured it out on Jesus' feet. You know, we need to to just get an idea of of how expensive that was. Let me read this to you. This is one thing I found. The alabaster jars were often made from a precious stone found in Israel. This stone resembled the texture of marble and was extremely expensive to own. The jars contained ointment, oils, and perfumes. Which the perfume was also very expensive because it so often came from long distances to get to Israel. The thick stone prevented the odor from escaping and the perfume from spilling. The shape of the jar was usually a long neck and sealed top. To open the jar, the top had to be broken, which allowed it to be only used once. I'll come back to that shortly. So here's this, this alabaster jar that was very expensive. Some researchers and and, um, uh, theologians believe that it was probably contained at least a year's salary of perfume. A year's salary. Imagine saving all that to have that perfume. You know, it was often Jewish ladies would often wear these these, um, uh, jars, these alabaster jars around their necks on a string attached because it was so valuable. And it had become so much part of the culture that they were actually allowed to wear them on the Sabbath, even. Was that important? So here's Mary bringing this flask to Jesus. Something that was so costly and dear to her and that it could only be used once. You see, this revelation that Mary had of who Jesus was, this thing that she saw, she realized that it was the, the, the most fitting thing she could do was to take that which was her most expensive item, that which was the most um, precious, that which was the most ex- sacred, that which was the most costly, and pour it out. Pour it out on Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus is not looking for oil to be poured out from us anymore. But he is looking for our lives. 
You see, as we see Jesus for who he is, as we begin to understand that Jesus is the worthy one and he is the only one who is worthy, you know, that's, that's his declaration. He is worthy. The Bible says that he is a lamb who has been slain for our sins. He's been exalted and he has a name above every other name. He has a name, the name which every tongue will confess in every tribe as Lord and every knee will bow before him. This is Jesus, the worthy one. In Revelation, John is caught up in, the, in a vision and he has his vision of heaven and the, and the throne room of heaven. And he paints this incredible picture and a scene unfolds that's incredibly profound. It has um, angels, lightning, thunder. There's a sea of glass, sapphire. There's one who sits on the throne. And around the one who sits on the throne, it says there are 24 elders. And then there are four living creatures who have wings and these amazing faces. There are angelic creatures. There are all these amazing people and things happening. And it says they all bow down. They all bow down before him. In Revelation 5, it says, why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy. You see, the thing that heaven knows about Jesus is he is worthy. He is worthy. And this is what Mary encounters. As she beholds this man, she realizes she looks past just this this man sitting there, and she sees, oh, he is so worthy. He is so worthy. And something stirs in her heart. It provokes her, this worthiness. And she breaks it open and she gives the only response she can, that which is the most precious. She gives it to him. And as we behold his worthiness, it should provoke us. Not to bring, a fragrant, not a, not to bring an offering of fragrant oil, but to bring an offering of our lives. You see, that's what Jesus is looking for. It's our lives being given as an extravagant offering. This is Romans 12.1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, this is what worship looks like. My life fully given to God is worship. You see, we have to understand this. Our worship, our worship is a response to his worth. That's where the word worship comes from, response to his worth. So when we come into worship, we're coming and we're responding to his worth. It's not about us. You see, so often I hear this question, oh, how is worship today? We're asking the wrong question. We're asking the wrong question. Our response, well, it was okay and... Really good, they sing my favourite song or or whatever. (laughs) But that's the wrong question. See, the question question isn't about how is worship. Well, it shouldn't be directed to us. It should actually be directed to God. How was worship this morning? How was worship for you today, Daddy? Did you receive it? Because you are worthy. Did you receive the glory and the honour and the praise that you deserve? Because you see, he is worthy. See, this is what worship looks like. It's not about the songs that just come out of our mouth. It's your life presented as an offering to God. That's what worship looks like. 
The only true offering to give him when you truly behold how worthy he is, is an extravagant offering. And that extravagant offering is to be our life. You know, that's the offering he's actually after. That's what he's after. Our lives given up in total surrender and delight. Not a duty. Not a duty, but it's because we behold him. We behold how wonderful he is, how worthy he is. And our immediate response is, oh God, have my life. Have my life. Romans 12, 1 in the Message Bible says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. That is a radical lifestyle, folks. That is a radical lifestyle. That my life would be given to God. But you see, it's about what my life is. It's about how worthy he is. And you know, when we do this so often, we get a response just like what Mary got. I mean, even the disciples who knew Jesus, when, she, when they saw what she was doing, they said, what on earth are you doing, woman? What a waste. What a waste. You see, so many people will look at your life if it's radically committed to Jesus and they'll say, they'll think, what a waste. Because they'll look and they'll not fully understand. Why do you waste your time going to church? Why do you waste your time doing this? Why do you? It seems so extreme. It seems so. I know, for me, I'm the only one that got saved in my family. My sister later on, and getting getting saved at a young age, and everything from the time I was 15 was determined. My, my faith, my 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 love of Jesus, determined everything I did from that moment on. My career, my life, my marriage, everything is born out of that. And I know for my, my brothers, you know, nice guy, but a little strange. Just a way bit too religious for them. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I remember when Sue's mum, when I left my pharmacy to come into ministry, she was okay with me being a pharmacist. That was kind of okay for a son-in-law. But becoming a pastor, that was just way too weird. So, <laughs> but she still spoke to me, which I guess was okay for a while anyhow. But, you know, it, it, it's so often like that, isn't it? Hey, come on, man, it's a bit extreme. Isn't it just, you know, a little bit would be okay. I mean, a little bit's okay. You know, maybe Easter and Christmas, and, 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 but all the time. You don't have to be so extreme about this. What they, what they don't realize is that when you have a revelation of who Jesus is, it's the only proper response to give my entire life as an extravagant offering before him. Because see, nothing, nothing I give to Jesus, nothing I ever spend on Jesus is ever wasted. It's never wasted. And and when we talk about the poor, Jesus is the one who taught us about the poor. He's very clear about his heart for the poor. He's very clear about our mandate and our responsibility to take care of the poor, poor. But in this moment, he doesn't go, hey, Mary, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You could have taken that money and given it to the poor. He doesn't stop her. Why? 
Because the only proper response when you have a revelation of his worth is an extravagant offering to him. See, worship needs to be extreme in nature. Worship needs to be extreme in nature. Here's what I really want to land on today, the point I really want to drive home today. I really want you to see who Jesus is, to understand his value and his worth, to see who he truly is. And I want each one of us to understand that my life poured out as an extravagant offering is what he's looking for. And you know what? We have to understand that extravagant offerings involve sacrifice. If I'm going to give God an extravagant offering, it's going to involve sacrifice. It's not out of our excess. It's not out of what we no longer have a use for. It requires sacrifice. I mean, Mary sacrificed all that she had. I mean, that may have well been her dowry. That might have been the thing that could have meant she got married someday. But it was irrelevant because she saw the worthiness of Jesus. She sacrificed it. She poured it out. It was costly. It was expensive. She looked foolish. She looked foolish to the people around her. It was costly. But, and it was a sacrifice what she did. You see, and we live in a society that very much sets us up for convenience above everything else. To make sure we live in a place of comfort above everything else. If you're uncomfortable, don't worry. We'll work it out so you're not uncomfortable or you're not inconvenienced. I mean, in all honesty, we want our lives to be as, as um, to entail as little inconvenience as possible, don't we? We want to make sure that we have all the personal comfort we can before we do anything else. But you see, if I'm going to give my life as an offering and response to the worth of God, then sacrifice is going to be involved. And the first level of sacrifice is this. You see, because when she broke open that jar, when she, and that flask was opened, it was an all-in type of thing. The sacrifice wasn't like I'm going to pour a little bit on Jesus' head and I'll keep the rest for another day. <laughs> That wasn't how it worked. When she broke open that flask, that was it. It was finished. It was all gone. It was all finished. She couldn't just use a little. There was no refund. There was no using a bit here and and, and I'll do some other options in my life. Once it was open, it was all or nothing. All or nothing. No getting your money back. You know, we live in a society where, I mean, I want to shop where I can bring it back if I, don't, if I change my mind. You know what I'm saying? I want to be able to do a refund. We see that more and more now, places offering, you know, bring it back and we'll refund it if it's no longer. Because we're always wanting to be in that place where we're not inconvenienced. But here's Mary and she's saying, I'm here. I'm in. You have all of me. It's not you have all of me until something better comes along or, or, or when something's going to make, be, make me feel better. She said, no, no, you're going to have all of me. 
See, in the response to discovering the glory and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, there is only one response that can be made. And that's extravagant worship. And that worship involves sacrifice. Once you break it open, it's open. No no half-hearted entry into the thing. Jesus is calling us to bring it all. But it's when we see his worth, when we see his worth, then our only response is to extravagantly give all of our lives. It involves in with all of this, not a half-hearted lifestyle, not I'm going to do a little bit now and then later on I'll pull it back or I'm going to do it later on. He's calling us now. He's calling us now. Mary couldn't take it back. She was committed. She was really committed to this deal. But you know, we've been raised in a society that doesn't understand sacrifice. It's almost become a dirty word. We kind of want to avoid it in every way we can. And I think sometimes we don't even recognize we're doing that. Yeah, and, and hey, listen, this is not a message to beat you guys up. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying that, that you know, God is calling us to position ourselves to live a life of, of extravagant worship and encounter with him. You know, we come from a lineage of faith that is so radical. Men and women of faith who have preceded us, man, they willingly sacrificed everything to Jesus. They were ready to sacrifice it all. Right from the disciples, I mean, Peter, the headstrong one, you know, the only time he took his foot out of his mouth was to change feet. But when he encountered the fullness of Jesus, you know, it, it's not in Scripture, but it tells us in tradition that when it came to his time to die, he asked to be crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord died. I mean, there have been people who have been martyred for their faith. The Moravians, who started in 1700s in, in, in Hernhut, Germany, and you may have heard me tell the story of how when Sue and I were over there and we, we went, it was one of our life dreams was to go to this Hearn hut, this little, and we went there. A little town, I mean, about three streets, you spat in a strong wind and it went from one end of the town to the other. It was just, it was so small. And yet the small town of radical worshippers changed the face of the earth. We were standing there, we'd, we'd, we literally had done the museum and we'd gone up and we'd probably only been there for half an hour and we'd virtually done the main part of the the town and we were standing there and this, this man came up and so we're in East Germany now and not a, not a lot of people, older people spoke English because you know obviously they'd come up under the communist regime and everything and so we're sort of standing there thinking what are we going to do, it would actually been a couple of days since we'd spoken to anyone in English and we're just standing in our car and this guy walked up to us and in perfect English he said excuse me can I help you and we told him who we were and what we we're doing, he said oh I'm an elder of the Moravian church, he said, come into my house. And he came, and we went into his house, and he was, his parents, he was born in Nepal. 
He was born in Nepal of missionary parents, and he was a man who led the first gospel missionary into Albania when the communist regime fell. And he took us out and he showed us the devotional that the church had been writing. And the leadership had been writing a, church, a devotional every year from before, before Columbus discovered America. Every single year they would get together and they would pray and they would ask Jesus to give them revelation of who he was and they would write a devotional. You can find it in some of the hotels and in some of the um, hotels in, in the rooms in Germany. They put them in there like the Gideons do in, in or used to do, I don't know if they still do it in hotels. But just incredible, these, these men and women were so radical for their time, so radical. Young leadership, women in leadership, in a time when, when women were, were repressed, and yet they had them all, and yet they also transformed the world. John Wesley was coming back from America on a ship. He'd been preaching the gospel, and he was coming back, and a storm came up, and he thought he was going to die. And as he was crying out to God, he suddenly heard the singing and initially he thought it was angels. Then he realized it wasn't, it wasn't quite that good. So he, he hunted out the singing and he found in the very depths, the poorest part of the ship, were a group of Moravians singing. And he said to them, how can you be so, so um, calm? And they said, because we know how worthy is he that we serve. And that actually put the seed in John Wesley's heart that led to his salvation, even though he had been preaching the gospel, he hadn't quite got saved. Maybe we all know someone. But you know, the transfer, the radical lifestyle of encountering how worthy Jesus is and responding to that. In fact, some of the Moravians, when they looked around, they said, who isn't getting the gospel? And they said, slaves. So they sold themselves and their families into slavery as sacrificial, um, a sacrificial outworking of the worthiness that they wanted to declare of how worthy was he that had died for them. Uh, these are the people that have gone before us. And, and look, I'm not, not saying that we've got to give everything up and push comfort aside and all that sort of thing. I'm not opposed to comfort. I, I like comfort <laughs> and convenience. I'm, I, I'm part of that. I get that. But I tell you what, I want something inside of me to say this. God, I am willing to give my life as an extravagant offering because you because you are worthy and I understand that there's going to be sacrifice involved but God I want to pay that you see we fall into the trap of convenience more than we realise C.S. Lewis the great Christian author and thinker when writing about the glory of God wrote this it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offering of a holiday and the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Discover the glory of the one we serve. Powerful, eh? In other words, we give ourselves to the small things of life, the convenient things of life. But there are greater riches. The fulfillment of our hearts are found in discovering the glory and the wonder of Jesus. There is sacrifice involved in extreme and extravagant worship and offering. 
But it's worth it. It's worth it. And you know what? You'll never give sacrifices motivated by duty, obligation, manipulation, shame or guilt. True sacrifice is motivated by love. That's what motivates us, love. That's why I want us all to see more of Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, we will love Jesus. And, when we f- and then we'll fall in love with him. And our hearts will be moved to worship and delight in him. Sacrifice. It's not words we often talk about. But when you fall in love with Jesus, obligation has no consequence. Sacrifice means nothing. Why? Because you're motivated by love. When we realize how worthy he is and the love motivates us, sacrifice is, is, is um, all right. You know what? And the other thing is real sacrifice is always a gift to him. True sacrifice is a gift to him. And you can't work it out if you're feeling manipulated or pressured by people. Because you see, it's ultimately not a gift you're giving people. I mean, and we encourage you to serve here. We encourage you, we encourage you to get involved. It's part of being a family. But ultimately, sacrifice to come and serve is not a gift to the people. It's a gift to him. It's a gift I give him. Other people may benefit from it, but ultimately it's not a gift we're giving people. It's a gift that we give him. Listen to what Mary, uh, sorry, what Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about Mary. The beauty of this woman's act consisted in this, that it was all, it was all for Christ. Got a bit of double there, sorry. The beauty of this woman's act consisted in this, that it was all for Christ. All in the house could perceive and enjoy the perfume of the precious ointment, but the anointing was for Jesus only. See, this is a beautiful thing. Whenever I say, Jesus, you're worthy in my life, you're worthy in my life, it's an extravagant offering. Because you know what? And it's got to be done from that place of giving it to God because a lot of what you give, your sacrifice, no one will ever know about. No one will ever thank you for. You won't tell people about it because it's not for them. It's for the one you love, the one that we find so worthy, the one who was slain, the one who hung on the cross for me. The one that deserves extreme sacrifice of my life. Whatever that is, it's compared nothing to what he died for, how he died for me. And you will never get there until you've had a complete revelation of Jesus. A radical life is connected to a revelation of who Jesus is. Because you see, when you see him, when you see him, you fall in love with him. And you begin to see how worthy he really is. And, and, And the least you can do is bring your life as an offering to him. And you have no regrets around it. You have no regrets around it.